What does Memorial Day mean to you? Mm. It means a lot. I was in the service for two years at, at the 54, 56, the end of the Korean War. Mm. But I was stationed in Germany. Okay. I was a medic. Uh, I was a blood specialist. Worked in the general hospital. And uh, when we got married, we rented a house, and there was four firemen there, and found, they found out I was a medic, and they said, you gotta join the fire department. We need somebody medically trained. So I was a fireman for 50 years. Wow. Uh, when I was, I, we got married during World War II, but uh, we were engaged and I got sent to San Diego and uh, I was in the Navy and uh, of course everybody said, oh, she shouldn't marry a sailor, you know, that'll never work. Well, worked 69 years. <laughs> you showed them. Yeah. I am a veteran and very much uh, proud of the Marine Corps that I served in the older country. In fact, I always say, the Dutch Marines trained the American Marines, but nobody wants to believe that. But we, we had drill sergeants that actually came from, uh, had served here and, and served in the, in the Netherlands. But, but we are very conscious, and again, having survived the Second World War, and in today, if you go to Belgium specifically, and to the Netherlands, you see these mass graves, I mean, thousands of young boys, 18, 19, 20, mostly crosses here and there, the Jewish star, and then you say, wow, yes. they all died so that we can have uh, peace, whether they're Canadian, whether they're Americans, or whether they were locals. And it is it's just unbelievable. It's especially meaningful to me because I lost a very dear nephew to the Vietnam War. He, um, he, he was, they spent a lot of time here with us before he went into the service and um, loved, loved my homemade pizza. <laughs> and so he wrote to me, uh, sent a Christmas card to us and said, um, put the pizza on Aunt Marilyn, I'm coming home, nine days. <laughs> and nine days before he, right after he wrote that, a sniper came into camp. He had already been released of all of his duties and turned in all of his equipment, was just waiting to be picked up. And a sniper came into camp and shot his buddy. And he ran out to help his buddy, and the sniper got him too. So he never came home for that pizza. Memorial Day uh, represents the sacrifices of uh, families who gave their sons at a young, ripe age, you know, gave up their sons for our freedom, for our uh, rights that we have today within our country as well as, as uh, worldwide, you know, to protect our country. And uh, it's, there's nothing like that. It's more important. Memorial Day 
think it was renamed in the 1970s, I believe, from Decoration Day, because the tradition of this day goes back to the Civil War where basically 600,000 people, population of Baltimore today, basically lost their lives. And, and since that time, we've basically paused and remembered sacrifice. And by sacrifice, we're essentially referring to someone who is willing to lay down something good for the sake of something they believe to be greater sacrifice. We conclude our, our look at the book of Proverbs with a message today on the theme of sacrifice. And what's interesting is that when you look at Proverbs and you pull out a concordance and you look up the word sacrifice, what you quickly discover is that pretty much every single reference to sacrifice in the book of Proverbs is negative. It's not a good thing. And of course, the context is different, right? The, the context back then was animal sacrifice and what God thinks of it. But invariably, what happens as we read it is sacrifice is kind of placed alongside something else where the other thing seems to be more important than sacrifice. And of course, the upshot of that is when it comes to observing days like today, Memorial Day, when it comes to the situation described earlier when a, when a, a fallen soldier's coffin is brought in, we can lose the importance of it. And, and some of us who are not kind of grasping the, the true implication of the scriptures, we'll kind of think, well, something else is more important. That can happen when sacrifice is placed alongside something else and the value of sacrifice seems to just be downplayed. And, and that's what often happens in the book of Proverbs. So we have this scripture. The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. It's as if you kind of have a sacrifice on this side, right? And then it's kind of they're kind of often put in Proverbs along, along opposite ends of a linear scale. You've got sacrifice and then you've got prayer, but if you want to do what God desires, then why don't you just practice prayer? And when we read passages like this, it's as if it's prayer above sacrifice. Prayer is a priority, therefore, over sacrifice. But that's really not what the, what the kind of Proverbs say, because if you, if you read it properly, what, what you realize, Proverbs and the Old Testament champions is not prayer, or sacrifice, but prayer and sacrifice. It just needs to be done the right way for the right reasons. And we misread Proverbs when we just think, hey, sacrifice isn't an important thing. It was important, but people practiced it wrongly. Today we honor sacrifice because there are millions, probably, of people in this nation that have practiced it right. It needs to be honored. Sacrifice like that needs to be remembered. When you look at Proverbs, what's interesting is that 
When God is challenging an attitude that people have, invariably he will call out the wrong attitude and then put up a a parallel statement to it. And and in all of these things, it's easy to kind of do the either-or thing, when in fact that's not what Proverbs is doing. It's actually calling us to an attitude. It's saying, look, don't be so focused on what's happening out there that you neglect what's going on in here. And so when it comes to prayer, for example, God also says in Proverbs, if anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, even their prayers are detestable. So when you look at Proverbs, invariably, there, there are kind of two traits that are put on opposite ends of the spectrum, on opposite sides of the scale. And what God isn't doing is calling one out to be more important than the other. He's actually addressing an issue on the inside that is basically wrong. And so in this particular case, what God is calling out in this passage is the fact that people think prayer is about saying words, even the right words, and are forgetting and even ignoring what it is that God is saying that claims to be true. And God says to his people, look, <laughs> yeah, I know I told you that sacrifice, yeah, practice prayer, but at the same time, don't forget the prayer when it isn't done the right way is as detestable to me as sacrifice. So what is God saying? Is the book of Proverbs saying don't pray and don't sacrifice? No, Proverbs is basically calling us to a life of and. And. Prayer and sacrifice. See, Proverbs teaches us that prayer can be, sacrif- uh, can be practiced as wrongly, as incorrectly as Sacrifice. And so we aren't asked to choose prayer over sacrifice, but to put both into action at the same time. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And. Now, it would be true to say, right, in life, especially in parenting, there are times when we are called to choose. Sometimes it really is an either or. If you've got a a teenager, you'll recognize that very often you'll have to set either oars. So just this week, Jordan wanted to play Xbox with his friends and have ice cream, and he wanted to put both in before it was bedtime. So he went downstairs, played Xbox with his friends, and then the time came to come off, and then he came up and asked me for ice cream. That wasn't going to work, buddy. It was an either or. This was your time. This was a deadline. You can't do that. It is either or. Kids, we know, will kind of push that, won't they? They'll push the reality of a choice. God is okay with choices. We see it in the book of Joshua. Joshua says, choose this day who you will serve. Either the Lord, he is God, or choose who you'll serve. Elijah says the same thing. Sometimes we do need to make a choice. But invariably, when you read the book of Proverbs and you have two kind of lines that are put opposite one another, it's not kind of asking us to make a choice between either or. It's actually challenging us to put both into practice the right way. It's a both and. See, the Christian faith, in a sense, is a, an and faith. At Central, we believe in the power of and. We say we exist to amplify the hope and life of Jesus. Not the hope or the life of Jesus. We actually believe hope and life go hand in hand. The power of and. The church actually believes in and. It it should, if it's biblical, not simply say, hey, we prioritize discipleship. 
A biblical church says it's about discipleship and evangelism. And you focus on one or the other, you get in trouble. But the reality is, every pastor knows this, every church knows this, every Christian knows this. It's really hard, isn't it, to exist in the end. It's really hard to put these two together in a way that makes sense. And hope and life. And discipleship and evangelism. The power of and. Businesses know the power of and. Jim Collins and uh, Scott Porus call business owners to kind of reject the tyranny of the or and to champion the genius of the and. You want to get on in business, they say, look, ignore this idea that it's an either or and try and pursue the and, because when you get to and, you put innovation back into your business. You're starting to think in a creative way, and. Manufacturing industry knows this. For years, they used to think about cost-effective, prioritizing costs over quality. But now manufacturing industry realizes it's gotta be cost-effective and quality in order to build brand reputation, and. Just last summer, Vipka and I were grappling with the realities that our kids were getting older and having this family time around the dinner table was getting more and more difficult. Any of you with me with that? So I came up with a genius idea of, hey, hon, why don't we get a hot tub? <laughs> and she's like, why do we want to do that? And I said, do you know how long the winters are? Can you imagine how nice and romantic it would be to just be in the hot tub in the snow? And she's like, Craig, we've got kids, right? So we did. We went up and got a hot tub, and it was totally great. And me being me, I research everything, especially when I don't know something. I spend more time researching it than I probably have in it. It's just the way I am. Well, I researched what I consider to be a really good brand and, uh, you know, cost-effective with quality. And so there was a store in Holland that thought, awesome, that just stocked those. I went in there, arranged it. After a number of weeks, the thing was there. It worked really, really well. I've got to clean the filters out. Clean the filter out. And I noticed a little, a little kind of water leaking on one of the valves at the top. And I thought, wait a minute, that's not what I paid for. Uh, honestly, I was a little bit frustrated, but I went into the store and Vipka's words, be nice, were just ringing in my ear. Right, And I go in and I say, hey, I've got a little problem with the hot tub. Uh, the, one of the valves on the top is cracked. And I, I kind of took the, the plugs off and I saw that there's a cap you screw on. And he stopped me and he said, oh, hang on there, Mr. Reese. He went over to, literally, over to the counter. This came in from the manufacturer, basically for you. They've ordered all of the parts. They realized this part wasn't up to standard. They've got a completely new manufacturing process. Here's the new valves to put on there. Should take you two minutes. Wow. What started off as a pretty, me being pretty irritated ended up with me walking out of there going, wow, that's really cool service. I wish you'd got it right from the first place, but if you're going to get it wrong, at least admit it and make my life a whole lot easier. And, and, quality and cost. Hope and life. Discipleship and evangelism. And yet the reality is living in the and is difficult. Prayer and sacrifice. And the, both of these 
terms come up negative in the scriptures because it's really difficult living in the center point between the two. A guy by the name of Andy Crouch has written a book called Strong and Weak, Playing God, he's a a great author, and he basically says, look, if we want to live in the end, we need to stop thinking in a linear way, and we need to think more dynamically than that. This is what he says in his book. What we need is not a linear or, but a two-dimensional and that presses us to see the surprising connections between the two things we thought we had to choose between. And perhaps even to discover that having the fullness of one requires that we have to have the fullness of the other. Now in that book, Crouch uses the simple, a simple two by two. Uh, two by two is basically looks like this. I like that shape because it reminds me of the cross. He says, if you want to try and get to the, to the heart of the tension, if you want to live in the end, this is a simple device, he says, that actually will help you to do it. That book is essentially about how do you live in strength and weakness at the same time? How do you demonstrate authority and vulnerability at the same time? Some people think you need to choose. You're either strong or you're weak. Crouch says it doesn't have to be that way. Sometimes, he says, putting yourself in a position of weakness or vulnerability is the greatest demonstration of strength that is conceivable to us. Can you think of an example of that? Isn't Memorial Day an example of that? Aren't we basically saying that the strongest people that we know are the ones who are willing to be the most vulnerable, even to the point of death? And that expression of weakness is the epitome of strength, not the antithesis of it. Strong and weak. Evangelism and discipleship are living in the ant. It's part of the challenge. How many of you are coming in here and you may have got a terminal diagnosis? You may have a marriage that's in trouble. You may have something going on that's causing you to experience life not as you thought it should be lived. And yet you come in here and we sing songs about hope. And now you're confronted. How do you bring this hope into your life when that life doesn't feel like life and This is the context of Proverbs when it talks about prayer and sacrifice. God is calling us to see the connections between the two and actually he's challenging us to move from where we find ourselves with a tendency to practice one or the other or neither and move into an expression where life in God is truly life. The Bible calls us to sacrifice over and over again. And yes, clearly that sacrifice for us isn't anything to do with animals. But the idea that sacrifice ended with animal sacrifice would be to misrepresent the faith. God is still calling us to sacrifice and he's still calling us to prayer. Now when we think about sacrifice, what God is asking us to do is to think about the externals, the things that we will do with our hands. When it comes to prayer, what God is doing is he's asking us to think about the internals, the things that people can't see. It's the ins and the outs, the internals and the externals. So what does it look like for you and me to be people who practice sacrifice and prayer? What does it mean for us to live in the and? 
What does it actually mean? Well, to be sure we're all on the same page, let's just get our definitions right. Sacrifice, simple definition, the act of giving up something good for the sake of something greater. It's the willingness to give up something valued for the sake of something more valuable. Sacrifice. I believe that great families, great marriages, great towns, great cities, great nations are built on this sacrifice. It's the willingness of each and every citizen to recognize that there are times when I am going to be asked to give up something important to me because something is more important for us. That's essentially what taxes are, right? Sacrifice. Great nations are built on this. Then we have prayer. Simply put, prayer is communion with God. I love this definition from Ralph Martin. He says prayer is not simply, uh, prayer is quite simply paying attention to God. Prayer. And if you were here last week, I'm kind of continuing a theme. I said, look, when it comes to charity and generosity, biblical generosity isn't defined by always saying yes. Biblical generosity is actually driven by discernment. Discerning when God wants us to do something and how God wants us to do something and how long for we should be doing this. Discernment. It's about a dynamic relationship with God. What Proverbs is calling people to is a life that is built on the idea that sacrifice drives nations and the type of sacrifice God is calling for is the sacrifice that's driven from the inside out through paying attention to what is important to God. Prayer and sacrifice. So what does it look like for you and me to sacrifice? When I think about this, this, using this two by two, we can put sacrifice up here. What what does this look like? Sacrifice and prayer. If we put sacrifice and prayer into operation, what the Bible basically says is we're living a life of faith that has integrity. The reason that God calls out prayer not done rightly, sacrifice not done rightly, is because it essentially lacks integrity. A scripture for this that you can look at if you want to do at home. I haven't got time to go into that today. It's probably Proverbs 21.3. Integrity essentially means wholeness. If we put the and into practice when it comes to prayer and sacrifice, basically our faith is being driven by what is happening on the inside as our heart relates to God. And then that reflection, that relationship with God is resulting in tangible expressions of sacrifice that impact, impacts upon our marriage, our families, our church, our country, and the world. Integrity. What would would we use? Do you think if, if a, a person relates to God where there's a lot of prayer and there's not a lot of sacrifice? Now this kind of behavior, this is, this is typical in a period of history with the aesthetics where they would just basically lock themselves away, the monks and their whole goal, their whole focus of life was basically to get to know God more. But the reality was in isolating themselves from the world, they were essentially neglecting the importance of sacrifice and justice and lots of other things. 
So the word that, I, that comes to my mind for a, for a believer, a follower of Jesus who's practicing prayer, really focused on, dare I say, discipleship, sanctification, getting to know God more. I'm going to use this word piety. Piety. This is where there's prayer, but no sacrifice. Oh, it's a very religious life. It may even be a very godly life. But God wants more. A scripture in Proverbs that speaks to this, Proverbs 28, 9. If anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, and if you have a look at the context in Proverbs 28, it's all about the Torah. It's all about the acts. Even their prayers are detestable. That's a pretty strong word, isn't it? It's as if... Faith hasn't got integrity if it's just about me and God. Jesus didn't die simply for you and I to be right with God. Jesus died in order for you and I to be put right with God so that we can be a part of his putting right process in the world. That's that's the idea. So piety. What about over here? What, What about if we have no sacrifice? and no prayer. What does that look like? No sacrifice and no prayer. The word that I'm going to put for this is religiosity. Another way of putting this, cultural Christianity. We live in church city. 172, somebody pointed out to me the other week, churches in Holland, roughly, got the nickname of Church City. We've got a high percentage of churchgoers. The reality is, however, 47% of of this area don't go to church at all. But we've got a high culturally Christian community, and I've said it before, when I get in the most trouble is when... I actually challenge things that are culturally Christian, but not necessarily biblically Christian. I get in a lot of trouble that way. Jesus got in a lot of trouble that way. Religiosity, it's basically where, kids, you get this, we're dragged to church, right? It's just what we do. But if you ask me whether I'm spending time in prayer or I'm actively praying to God about what he wants me to do, what is my part of the putting right project in the world, that is non-existent from my life. Now, let's be honest. We've all had stages here, haven't we? What does God say when we find ourselves here? When our faith is dry, when it's not going up much, and it's certainly not going out much, what does God say about that? When there's no prayer and no sacrifice, this is basically what God says. These people come near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules that they have been taught. We can can all get there. There's no condemnation with this. It's just trying to say, hey, look, this is the tension. God calls us to live in the end. He calls us to live with, with an eye on what's going on in the world and sacrificing for something greater in the world. But that has to be driven by something that's going on on the inside. And yet sometimes it's really difficult living in the end. 
Sometimes we can get caught up in the whole religiosity, the whole cultural Christianity. And folks, I believe that one of the best things that's going to happen for the church in America is for cultural Christianity to die. Because then when people say they follow Jesus, they really follow Jesus. So we've got one danger here, piety, where it becomes about me, not about the world. The other danger here is where it's religiosity, where we've been brought up in it, we're desensitized to it, and it's not about me and God anymore, it's just about me and the family, that's just what we do. Well, there's another part to this, and that is sacrifice and no prayer. Where you're over here and not down here, I'm going to wait on the word for this one, because this word is a pretty harsh word. This is what Proverbs says on this one. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. To do what is right, to be righteous, to practice justice is more important to God than sacrifice. When you look at the scriptural teaching on this, this is, by the way, the character, characterization, the kind of box that the liberal church lives in. Because the word that the Bible and Jesus himself uses for this is harsh. It's hypocrisy. I'm fortunate that Jesus uses this word, so if you don't like it, argue with him. He basically says there are so many people who sacrifice over and over again, and Jesus says, and some of them aren't even afraid to tell you what they're doing. But the problem with this is they're just so far away from the heart of God. And we see this in the liberal church in America that basically divorces the whole idea of sacrifice from a personal relationship with God that has been made possible through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And so the harsh words that are reserved for, for people who seem to be doing good things on the outside, but the problem is their heart is far away from God himself. Proverbs 21 addresses this. The craving of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable, how much more so when brought with evil intent. Now, we aren't told what the evil intent in that verse is, but many commentators believe it has to do with doing something to earn God's favor. Getting, to God, uh, getting God to answer a personal plea without giving any consideration at all to the vitality of the petitioner's request uh, relationship with God. So asking God for something, having this private prayer request and, and this big need and think, well, if I only do things that actually make God love me or make God favorable to me, then maybe he will actually answer my prayer. That's the way commentators go with this. Now remember, prayer is paying attention to God, not getting God to pay attention to us. Get that, please. So many of us pray daily, but it's about trying to get God to pay attention to us. We don't pray in a way that says, God, can you help me pay attention to you, what you want to do in the world? Now, Jesus addresses sacrifice without paying attention too. This is what Jesus says. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. To be honored by others, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Harsh words. 
in applying this, let me, let me just ask you where, do you, where do you find yourself? What is the tendency that you have? To worship with integrity is to basically recognize that there needs to be sacrifice in my life, the willingness to sacrifice good for the sake of something greater, and there actually needs to be devotion in my life. And we need to live in the power of and. And that's a hard place to live. And each of us here have got to pull somewhere. And depending on your background, depending on your circumstances, it's probably going to be in one of these three. So what does God say we need to do if we find ourselves with a kind of disposition to either prioritize discipleship over evangelism, discipleship over mission, or if we have just been brought up in the church for so long that we've heard it all before over and over again, and we find ourselves just drifting off into religiosity land. We say the words, but we try. If you're familiar with the the prophets, you would realize that over and over again, this kind of challenge is what the Old Testament prophets were inspired by God to do. They were sent by God with a message that basically said, look, this is where I want my people to live. And probably the best verse that speaks into this directly is from the book of Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, and in verses 6 through 8, This is what God says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? These are all questions. What do I need to do to get right, God? What do I need to do to walk with integrity? This is God's answer. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. I love that. Not new revelation, but simply restating what has already been told. He has shown you. He has told you what it is that you're supposed to do. And what does the Lord require of you? The famous part. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I want to say the solution to where we find ourselves here is those three words. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Act justly. Simply means this. Getting our social relationships right based upon what God deems appropriate. Injustice in the world is basically not handling relationships, whether with individuals or with peoples, according to the way that God thinks. So God says, look, love justice. Act justly. Love mercy. Relating to people compassionately, not out of obligation, because we just love doing it. Love mercy. Thirdly, walk humbly. Walk humbly. A life walk that is not proud, but is attentive, careful, and prudent to follow God's will. This is how we practice sacrifice in prayer. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. And again, going back to this flip chart here, we can actually see how this works. This is where God wants us. God wants, let me change the color up here for you to see it. God God wants our worship to be a lifestyle of worship. He wants it to be integral to who we are, integrity, wholeness. 
Worship is not simply singing portion of a service. Worship is lifestyle. God wants our worship to have integrity. So what happens if we find ourselves making our faith about me and my relationship with God? What God says to us is, hey, folks, love mercy. Love mercy. And what God means with that is very simple. He, he basically means, look, you've got to realize that your faith is not about you. I've saved you in order to use you to reach the world. Here, religiosity, what God calls those of us who are just tired of the whole thing, he says, look, this is what I want you to do. I want you to act justly. If this one is about compassion, reaching down from here with compassion, that's the ethical out, compassion. This one, this one is all about collaboration. This is about calling people to a, to a project that God has with the world. It's about saying, look, don't sit there on the sidelines. Don't just come to church week in and week out and get bored out of your mind. Don't you realize that a life with God is one of the greatest adventures that you could possibly ever experience? And many of us don't experience it, God is saying, because we're just going through the motions. And God is saying, don't just sit there, step in, be a part of my project to put the world right. Compassion. Look, don't just sit there and see a world full of need while you just focus on praying to me. If there are broken people, bend the knee, wash feet, show love. Compassion, collaboration. If your faith is about you, God is saying, look, stir up compassion in your soul. If you're just bored out of your mind, God is basically saying to you, you know what, collaborate. Get involved. Stop sitting on the sidelines. This, one, this one's the hard one. This one is the hard one because this is basically about truth. Don't know about you, but if you have people who speak truth into your life, there are times when you don't like them very much. This one is basically calling all people to walk humbly. This is basically about truthfulness, about truth. The Bible says, look, if there is a, a focus on good works and we think good works makes God happy, then we need to realize that we are totally out of touch with what Scripture says. It is not by works that we have been saved. It is not by our sacrifice that we have been saved, lest anyone should boast Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We're saved by grace. And when we live a life that is focused on doing good, doing good, doing good, without recognizing that the only reason we can do eternal good is because God loved us and sent Jesus Christ to die for us, God basically says, your sacrifice is detestable in my eyes. Again, it's a harsh word. As I look at this, I, I kind of, get in touch with what our, some of our values are at Central. We value worship. Okay? We, we value mission. 
the reason we do mission is because worship doesn't exist. John Piper. Mission exists because worship does not. When worship exists everywhere at all the time, their mission stops. Worship and mission. But there's another two here. We value family. We value family. We were not saved to stay alone. We were saved to build a covenant redemptive community. And this one is about the value of scripture. So what does this call us to do? What does living here call us to do? Be faithful. Be faithful to the word of God. Be faithful to the people of God. Be faithful to the mission of God. What does this one call us to do? To recognize that we have a responsibility to the people around us. It calls us to take our eyes off ourselves and focusing, focus on what true worship is. What does this one call us to do? Stop sitting on the sidelines. Stop trying to do good deeds. But rather join with, with God and ask God, how does he want you to live? What does he want you to do? And this one, this is the hard one. Because this means every time I open the Bible, every time I'm involved in conversation and Bible study, I'm basically saying, God, help me to pay attention to you. Help me to see what it is that you're saying. When I, when I look at this, I'm struck by something, and I'm going to finish here, but I'm struck by something. If, if you think about this, who's the greatest example of doing this? Isn't that Jesus himself? Isn't he the best example of this? I think about it. What we have here is basically a priestly ministry. This is basically when you see someone in need, you basically reach out to them. That's the priestly function of compassion. This one over here, this is the prophetic ministry. You've got the priestly, you've got the prophetic. What about this one? The Bible says when, at the time when kings were going to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. This is a kingly ministry here. This is the ministry of a king. To call people to a greater action. Prophet, priest, king. Do you know who Jesus was? Jesus was the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and the king. He's the one who perfectly embodies, perfectly expresses what it's like to live with God. And that's what it means for us to sacrifice too, to put on that priestly robe, to put on that priestly function. What does the Bible say? We are now priests. Priests, the priesthood of all believers. But guess what? The Bible also talks about the prophethood of all believers through the book of Joel. Joel says the Holy Spirit will be poured out on young and old, male and female, the prophet of all believers. And guess what? We are all called to be a part of a mission, be part of a ministry, prophet, priest, and king. You know why we worship Jesus? Because he is the true expression of sacrifice and prayer. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. That's why they called him the Messiah. And listen to Hebrews 9.28. Listen to what Hebrews 9.28 says about this prophet, priest, and king, this Messiah. So Christ, this Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Are you waiting for him? He's going to come again. He's going to appear again. And the Bible says until he does, we're to do something. We're to remember. Not only remember the fallen who've given up their lives, who sacrificed their lives for something great, we're to remember the ultimate sacrifice once and for all of Jesus Christ on a cross, that our sins could be forgiven, that our needs could be met through community, and that we could be involved in a putting right project with the world. And so we're going to remember him right now. Paul says we're to do this, break bread, drink the cup, until he comes again. And when he comes, we will receive salvation fully and freely. 
the band are going to come back up. The team are going to come up. They're going to lead us in a song. Ethan and Hannah are going to sing a song called Remembrance. Brilliant song that reminds us of the elements. And what I want you to do is as you take this today, if you find yourself kind of stale, as you take the bread and drink the cup, you just say to Jesus, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for me. And I pray that this week I will be more attentive to your will as I go around my life. If you're here today and your, your focus is on you and you've lost focus on the world, then I, I want you to take the bread and the cup and I want you to say, Jesus, thank you that you put me right with God in order for me to be a part of your putting right project in the world. Help me put on those priestly robes this week and minister to those with compassion. And if you find yourself in a situation where you are practicing good works, but it is devoid of that relationship with God, then I want you to take the bread and take the cup and say, Father, I thank you that you have given, placed in me an innate desire to do good. But please, Father, help me realize that there is nothing good in me save for the goodness and the grace of God. And may I minister to others out of the gift of love and goodness that you have given to me.